It's the e-commerce master plan podcast here to help you grow your e-commerce business faster and more efficiently by cutting through the hype to bring you inspiration and guidance from the e-commerce sector and beyond. Here's your host, Chloe Thomas. Hello, master plan world. Welcome to our latest podcast our last podcast of 2016. And as always, it's a pleasure to have you all out there listening. I'm Chloe Thomas, creator of the e-commerce master plan, author, speaker and consultant, and I focus on e-commerce business strategy and marketing. Last time we visited the world of SaaS with Greg Smith of Thinkific. So if you haven't yet checked that one out, go and have a listen because there's some interesting tidbits in that one. As there always is, in fact. Well, today I don't just have one interview for you, I have six. Yes, it's time to review 2016. And who better to do that with than our selection of experts from around the world of e-commerce? Today, the question they're answering is, what do you think was the most interesting thing in e-commerce in 2016? If you'd like to add your thoughts to the debate, then head over to our e-commerce masterplan world Facebook group via ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash Facebook. We're going to start off with a couple of points of view on Black Friday and how it's evolved this year. Starting off with Heather McIlvain, who's the editor of Australia's internet retailing magazine. Now, don't be fooled by the accent. Uh, She might be an American, but uh, Heather knows the Australian e-commerce world inside out. I think 2016 will be remembered as the year the Global Online Shopping Festival um, really got big in Australia. So Australians are some of the biggest cross-border shoppers in the world. And of course, they've you know been shopping Black Friday and Cyber Monday deals for years overseas. But this year, um, well, they, they did that too this year. Australia was the third most popular shipping destination for Black Friday deliveries from the U.S. I think this year was a turning point. And we saw a, a much larger number of Australian retailers offering major discounts domestically as well. And I, I think one of the interesting things is because there's not really, you know, there's no allegiance to the tradition of Black Friday being traditionally a day about bricks and mortar deals and Cyber Monday being about online deals. Um, we saw most retailers offering deep discounts across all their channels online and in store from Friday through to Monday, if not longer. What, the reason I, I chose the Global Online Shopping Festival was that in Australia, it wasn't just about Black Friday, although that was certainly the the most covered in the news and I think the biggest uh, in terms of what retailers are thinking about. But we also saw Australian retailers participating in China's Singles Day and um, our own homegrown click frenzy this year, uh, even though the latter is continuously plagued by service failures. But um, even still, I think what's interesting about these things is that even though there's a larger number of retailers participating even the retailers that don't participate and don't offer deals, they're still seeing a ripple effect and they're still seeing um, a sales uplift. And so I actually um, spoke with the CEO of Meyer, the department store chain, Richard Umbers, um, and he said that he saw an uptick uh, in online sales at Meyer around Singles Day, even though the the, re- the business wasn't offering any deals at the time. I mean, it doesn't even sell on Alibaba, and that's kind of a prerequisite for uh, the Singles Day sale. So there's all of this hype about the event, and people aren't necessarily staying within the walls of you know that specific event when they go online. They're online, and they're looking at other things too. So I think what's happening is there's an incentive to cr- to do things that generate buzz. 
and I've heard from a number of retailers that their calendars are um, increasingly being driven by big online shopping events throughout the year. What's the impact of that going to be? And, and one example that I want to point to is kind of recently in the news down here, which is um, the online department store, Kogan.com, uh, recently launched something called, they're calling hourly deals, where they're going to offer for a really steep discount on one product every hour. And that's going to be happening you know, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And it seems kind of like a flash sale, but maybe because of the timing, because it's on the back of Black Friday, kind of brings that same tune. So it seems to be of a kind with those event-driven promotional discounts. It's great to have the Australian perspective represented this year. I've been wanting someone from Australia on as a, in the expert seat since I started the podcast. It's great to finally achieve it. So thank you, Heather. And um, I'd love to know if that halo effect of Black Friday happened in the UK. And if anyone else out there is going all out on hourly deals, um, do get in contact if you're up to that or know someone who is. Now for another perspective, even on Black Friday, from another expat American. This time, it's an American based in the UK. Um, I couldn't fit into the podcast, but he did publicly apologise for the whole concept on behalf of the country. So it's Skip Fedura of Dot Mailer. We had this interesting conversation the other day about Black Friday and whether it was a thing or not a thing. And the person I was talking to said, well, it didn't seem to be a thing. There, you know, I could go to any website and I could do the, you know, browse and shop. And, you know, last year there were so many issues with so many different sites being down and not being able to, able to handle the traffic. And this person was hypothesizing that, well, actually, but, you know, it's not as big a thing for consumers. It's, it's you know, not, maybe they're not buying or whatever. And then we looked up the stats and, the, you know, the BBC was reporting that Black Friday was the biggest day ever. It was a billion pounds worth of sales in one day and all that kind of stuff. And then we started looking at our own stats uh, from here at Dot Mailer, and the number of emails we sent on Black Friday was up by 55% over last year. 10% of those were, roughly, uh, went between 9 and 10 in the morning. So, you know, I, th I think Black Friday was a big thing. Um, and I think for me, one of the, maybe not the most interesting things in e-commerce in 2016, but definitely one of the success stories of e-commerce in 2016 is that we've kind of, we've figured out how to scale. and We've figured out how to deal with all the traffic. So if we've learned how to scale, what's next? Mar marketer's approach to this season is, is um, I described it as almost being wedding-like in the sense that, you know, it, when you get married, um, there's this big push in the lead-up to the, to the big day, and you have the big day, and then the happy couple goes off on, you know, a mini-moon or a honeymoon or whatever it is, and then they come home, and they're like, um, um, now what? <laughs> and... and Marketers seem to be doing the same same thing. We've got this series of discrete events. It's Black Friday, then Cyber Monday, then uh, Small Business Saturday, then Out of Stock Tuesday, and on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> and, on. and then we get to the January sales. And then in February, everybody's sort of like, hmm, now what? You know, I think one of the things that the better marketers are doing is thinking about how do I treat that whole period as as a thing instead of a series of discrete events. How do I treat my existing customers, my loyal customers who have bought from me again this Christmas? How do I treat the existing customers who haven't bought yet? And, and I think most importantly, how do I treat the new customers? So 23% of your new customers will be won over the Christmas period, and 27% of those, or 6% of the total, 
will go on to buy again. And I think part of that is because marketers don't differentiate between uh, people coming in new at Christmas uh, and the rest of their customer base. And you know, somebody comes in new, they, they buy something, they maybe go through a welcome journey, and then they get checked into the normal marketing comms, which in the lead up to Christmas is all about sell, 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 sell. That's not the way to meet somebody new. That's not the way to build a relationship. You know, the way to build a relationship is appreciate this time of year, they're going to be busy. They're going to be getting messages from lots of other people and to back off. And, you know, even the, the clever people might back off and say they're backing off. Too many marketers get that new customer at Christmas and they're, aiming, they're shooting for that New Year's Eve date when what they really want to be doing is thinking about how can I sell these people something not, again, before Christmas or not even in the January sales, how am I going to sell them something in March? It does seem to me that in 2016, we finally started not just talking about segmentation and sequences, but actually started to do it. Maybe that's because we started to understand how to differentiate ourselves a bit more and the strengths we have as smaller rather than huge businesses. Well, here's Alex O'Byrne of the number one Shopify agency, We Make Websites, and he's going to talk us through how his most interesting thing of 2016 is realising how the smaller retailer, whilst they can't compete with the bigger retailers with tech and new developments, we can beat them with personality in our brand stories by being unique, by being authentic a.k.a. how to make the most of being small. Here's Alex. The big retailers are getting better and better and better at doing what they do with more advanced technology and more advanced innovation. For example, Amazon Go offering their proof of concept frictionless store or the way in which uh, click and collect and true omnichannel is coming to many of the big brands. And a lot of the brands we work with are a bit smaller and can't do those sort of things. But it occurred to me this year that they are able to innovate on something that the big retailers can't, and that is the fact that people feel more of a connection to them, that they uh, can often see the craft or the story behind the brand, and that the things they sell tend to be more special in some way. And for smaller brands, that's actually a great opportunity for them to be able to capitalize on that and do a good job of showing why they're different to an Amazon or an eBay or an Argos. I think the secret is to differentiate between whether you are a retailer that sells loads of stuff and is good at that or is a retailer that is more focused on being a brand and having your customers get to know who you are and what you're about because that's what people are looking for when they buy certain products. So if they're buying uh, clothing or furniture or some other lifestyle product, very often they're willing to spend a bit more if they can feel like the brand is identifying them in some way. And I think doing a good job of being, um, it's no overused word, but being authentic and showing what you're about and why you're different is something that Amazon will never be able to do because they'll always just be able to show, look, we sell all this stuff cheap. Whereas you're able to say, look, this is our story, this is why we do what we do, and this is why you should buy from us. And I think a certain audience for each brand will uh, recognize that, and that is how you build loyalty into your brand. Well, let's dive into some of those big company ideas and how we smaller players can take advantage of it with Paul Skeldon, the editor of M Retailing. So guess what he's talking about? Yep, it's mobile. 
for me, the most significant thing is that sort of routinely across most retailers, uh, traffic and sales on mobiles now passed 50%. Uh, and so you're finding kind of a lot of retailers seeing a huge amount of, of business now coming through the mobile channel. M&S uh, seeing their, their mobile phone sales, um, individual sales from people have gone from 7 million in 2012 to 80 million in 2015. It's massive growth. Uh, John Lewis uh, has seen sort of um, its mobile sort of sales drive um, e-commerce up from 34% to 86%. Uh, Cardo is seeing 50% of his traffic uh, recently coming from uh, mobile. Mobile's just sort of taking over. And I think sort of the idea that um, mobile now is something somehow separate from e-commerce is sort of, is, is almost bunk. It's just sort of different ways of doing the same thing. People just reach for whatever they have to hand to buy things and increasingly don't sort of think too much about um whether it's a mobile device, a website or whatever. And most of the big retailers have got all that in line. The experience you get online is very similar to the experience you get on your, your mobile or your tablet. Uh, and I think we're going to see that filter down into sort of smaller and smaller retailers until it's just, just the accepted norm. Because these days, anyone looking to buy something is going to open someone's website. If it doesn't work on a mobile, they're probably just going to go straight away somewhere else. So, you know, it's an imperative. Um, I think related to that, it's also quite interesting. In recent months, we've seen uh, quite a lot of growing interest amongst retailers in mobile payments. Now, consumers have been quite keen on using mobile as a payment tool or, or a small sort of, you know, a hardy bunch of them have for some time. It's starting to spread, I think, as, as Apple Pay gets more sort of entrenched in more Apple users' hands. Um, but you're starting to see retailers now get research from Visa shows that like 54 to sort of 60% of consumers are, are wanting to do it regularly. Uh, and that 18% who haven't yet used it were very keen to find out how to do this. A great example of mobile payments is from one of our past podcast guests, Deborah Lipman, who sell nail varnish, and they added Apple Pay options to their emails and saw huge conversion rates, including lots from customers who'd never bought from them before, and all without the customer even having to visit the website. So I asked him what the approach on mobile should be. Should it be web? Should it be app? Should it be just selling from the emails or, or what? I think ideally you need to have a mobile first design that works on web and works on pretty much any device that you can think of, including, let's not forget TVs, because I think we're going to start to see a lot more uh, apps on TVs and things where people can buy things. Uh, I think you also need to have apps um, and and you need to, to have, a, have a, a website, as I say, that works on mobile. Now, increasingly, or on your mobile phone, and you try to buy something from, or you Google something, you'll get a website. Say you want to buy a pair of shoes from ASOS or whatever. Google will take you to ASOS's website. You click on it. If you've already got the ASOS app, it will just fire up the app on your phone, and then you're taken into the app experience. Not just with ASOS. This happens with any retail app that you've got on your on your smartphone. So... In many ways, you have to have both. But what's great about it for retailers is, is because of the way Google now works, uh, directs this sort of traffic, or, or rather fires it up as a, as a web link, but your phone recognizes that you have the app, uh, is, is that you do then get funneling more people from sort of uh, natural search into using a native app, which is where you can have a lot more fun with them and learn a lot more about them uh, and give them a much richer experience. So you need to have both. And it's expensive and difficult. 
We need both a mobile-friendly site and an app, and it's going to be both expensive and difficult. Hmm, thanks, Paul. So I asked Paul what the smaller retailer should do. For the smaller players, this this is 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 you know the sort of nirvana that they eventually will have to reach. I think sort of as with all these things, the cost of doing it will slowly come down. I think you have to learn from what what the sort of big retailers who can afford to do this are doing. But I think what you need to to do in lieu of not being able to necessarily afford an app, uh, and I personally wouldn't sort of say go and buy an app straight away. That's the wrong way around to do it. You need to have a mobile first designed website. And you need to make sure that the design and functionality of that gives the best app-like experience that you can, because it's all coming down to sort of how people experience you, and, and they want a slick and nice experience. Now, on your, back to the sort of earlier point about sort of just embedding the payment into your marketing emails. I mean, that, that sort of bypasses having to have all this sort of stuff. However, I don't think you should you know, do that. You still have to have a really good sort of adaptable, responsive website that will work on mobile and deliver a great experience. And that can be done. Phew. Well, you can still do it with just a good website, but please don't try to rely on Apple Pay only if your website works appallingly on mobile. It might be a stopgap, but you're clearly going to need to get that mobile optimised site working by the time we get to 2018. So put it on your to-do list. Of course, all this cross-device consumer behaviour does make tracking rather difficult. Or does it? Here's Anne-Sophie Forget, an e-commerce professional working for a big agency, with her most important learning from 2016. If I have one thing to choose, it would be cross-device uh, tracking and, and measuring. And the reason is uh, we, we all know that mobile uh, is growing. Um, I think now the, the searching on mobile overtaking the, the searches on desktop, especially in the e-commerce vertical. Uh, and everyone has been has known that for quite some time. Uh, but this year it was really about um, really take this, um, this idea of mobile and how we can justify the investment mobile and really show the value. So one of the the idea to show the value is look at how much we invest in mobile and look at after that what's the consumer doing and and really reach this customer throughout the, the journey uh, and deliver some specific messages. So most a lot of our clients put cross-device tracking to justify the investment of, of, of mobile as being really um, part of the, the purchase journey. So you're talking about creating ad campaigns and activity that follow the user as they move from device to platform to search engine, I suppose, and then uh, making sure the right message is in the right place? That's correct. Uh, and what we saw on, on AdWords specifically, on, on for example, is we are able now to put some cross-tracking device to really show the value of the mobile investment because on 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 last click usually it doesn't contribute that much and sh and show that it really brings value and you need to reach those customers especially when you're on your mobile you're in your train for example you actually have time to read and and, and get this uh, the brand can get this awareness from this face so we shouldn't just um leave it on the side we should complete completely embrace this uh, this medium as well well, of course, cool. so it's both about the, the tracking and the results, so seeing the full picture, yeah. but also about the right message in the right place. Absolutely. It's not exactly what you want, is it, Google Ads to get any more complex? 
Okay, our final expert is Chris Dawson of Tame Bay. Ever ready with an alternative take on things? What's his most interesting thing in e-commerce in 2016? The rise of the new devices. And by that, I mean, we started off with computers and laptops, and then we went mobile with mobile phones tablets, but we've seen a new generation of devices come along, which are screenless devices, things like Amazon Alexa was the first, and then we've got Google Home come along, and Amazon Alexa, you can actually do shopping on it, although, my God, it is so limited, it is unbelievable. Google Home, you can't even do shopping on, but this is just the very first incantation of kind of artificial intelligence and voice-only devices. And that, I believe, is how the future of the internet is going to be and how we're going to communicate with the net in the future. There'll be devices listening, um, maybe around the home, maybe wearable devices. I don't know, but there'll be devices listening all of the time. We'll only have to speak to the internet to get things done. And that's going to include e-commerce. So do you think that um, in a few years' time, we'll be looking back and going, oh, my God, you used a keyboard? Absolutely. And nowadays, I've got a mobile phone. I hardly ever use the keyboard. Even if I'm in the car, I want to send a text message. I just say, okay, Google, send a text message to Chloe, mm-hmm. and it'll find your telephone number in my phone book. It'll bring, bring it out, and I can say, tell Chloe I'm going to be late. So send Chloe a text message saying I'm running 10 minutes late, and it'll send you a text message saying, oh, Chris is running 10 minutes late. I don't need to use a keyboard even today. Wow, crazy times. Um, so I had to ask, Chris, what the impact will be on e-commerce. Um, and this is where it gets proper interesting. Well, the big thing with this is how does that artificial intelligence inside whatever robot machine we're talking to find out what we want to buy? So I'm going to take something really, really simple, which is let's say you're in the market for a new iPhone. And you want an iPhone 7, you want the big one, and you want the pink one. So you say to the device, whether it be Alexa or Google Home or an eBay device or whatever device it happens to be, I want to buy a new iPhone, I want the big one, and I want it in pink. Mm -hmm. That device has now got to translate. I want an iPhone, the new one. The new one is the latest one. That's got to be the iPhone 7. That is a product attribute. And then you said you want the big one. And this artificial intelligence has got to realize that the big one actually means the iPhone 7 Plus, not the basic right. iPhone. And then you, that's another product attribute. And then color is an attribute. You said you want the pink one. And this artificial intelligence has got to realize that there are no pink iPhones. Apple call that color rose gold. So it's <laughs> got to equate pink to rose gold. Now, first of all, this device has got to be able to do that translation which any shop assistant selling iPhones when you say I want a pink one they'll get you a rose gold one they know those two things equate to each other but the other thing is this product product attributes have to be contained in some sort of database in some sort of structured data so that those connections can actually be made so retailers have got to get those product attributes built into their data sets, whether it be on marketplaces like eBay and Amazon, whether it be on their website, and in actual fact, it all comes back down to um, what we call a GTIN, or the product barcode, mm-hmm. which all those attributes can be related to a barcode. That product data is going to be so essential because now we can't even see a picture of the device. We're not typing anything. We're just talking to not a person, but a thing. 
that has got to translate what we tell it we want to what it actually knows that means we actually want in reality. So I asked Chris, is this all on the retailer to get it done? Well, I don't think we necessarily have to list the, as a retailer, we have to list the colour as pink and as rose gold. What we have to do is make use of the attributes that the marketplace or the site that we're listing on uses. So, for instance, on Amazon, when you're listing a product, they have what they call maps so that you can map different colors against a single color. So you might just the attribute as rose gold, and then you might map that color to, if someone types in gold or pink or rose gold, they all equate to the rose gold color. Mm-hmm. So we can actually help on sites like Amazon by mapping alternatives to the actual attribute. Again, it might be a manufacturer specifies um, a brown jumper as a burnt umber jumper, it's very unlikely that a consumer is going to search for a burnt umber jumper. <laughs> so we want to map that, that if they search for burnt umber, it actually is, equates to, if they search for brown, that's what we want it to be looking for. So we can help as retailers, but it's really down to the, the people that are constructing these structured data sets to to help us to help them and to give us the facility to actually map different different attributes and colours. Um, but then ultimately, when I say I want the big iPhone or the large iPhone, somehow that artificial intelligence has got a map that the big iPhone is relating to. There's an iPhone and there's an iPhone Plus and the iPhone Plus is a bigger screen. And, and actually, the, um, the iPhone is actually quite a simple product to try and buy vocally. Yeah, there's only, there's, there's only a couple of options. It's like how much memory do you want and what screen size do you want? But it also gets a lot more complicated if you think of something as simple as a printed T-shirt. Let's say that there's 10 different designs in six different colours in eight different sizes. Um, I want a black T-shirt with ACDC printed on it in size large. That's quite a simple thing for me to tell you. But this artificial intelligence has now got three different attributes in structured data, and it's got to get all three right. I think the, inter- the, the most important points are that retailers need to ensure that they've got their structured data as correct and comprehensive as possible, preferably working with someone like GS1 um, who will uh, tie that structured data to a GT, and that's to um, a, an EAN, a European article number for us, or an EAN for the US, or uh, different numbers for around the world, but we'll, we'll, we'll call it a GTIN. Um, and that structured data can be tied to that GTIN, either by the manufacturer, by a different retailer, by ourselves. Everyone can help build that structured data. And then wherever that GTIN appears, shares one in the background will have the structured data um, linked irrevocably to that GTIN, so that then any artificial intelligence device device can actually interrogate that data. Um, but similarly, with Amazon, um, you don't actually own the listing on Amazon. There's a single product detail page which Amazon and multiple sellers can all contribute to to build up that data set. Retailers and things like Amazon Alexa can interrogate that data set to find out which product we're actually looking for. In truth, it will assist you 
even on laptops, computers, or mobile devices like tablets and iPads today. But in the future, when we go to screenless devices where I can't see a picture to confirm that what you're offering me is what I actually want to buy, it will become even more essential that we get these details correct. So I see all of yours future, and it involves a lot of product attributes. But don't assume that's all the future holds. Our experts will be back in early January to answer, what's your number one marketing recommendation for e-commerce in 2017? Well, Masterplan World, you can find out more about our experts and what they've been telling us about at ecommercemasterplan.com forward slash 82, as well as the next expert show. We have a lot coming up for you in January as we've put together a whole series, the 2017 e-commerce growth series sponsored by Vico, the number one inventory software. Coming up over the next 10 episodes, we have interviews with a fascinating set of e-commerce businesses, even if I do say so myself, each of which is going to help you to work out how to deal with one of the key challenges you will tell me about. Plus, we have some expert viewpoints on buying a business, selling a business and starting a business. Wow. Um, As well as tips on marketing for 2017 from our experts. So, Make sure you come back next time because we're going to have the first in that growth series, which is the Shopify Builder Business Winners Best Self Co. Have a great week. Have a good new year. And don't forget to keep optimizing. Thank you for listening to the e-commerce master plan podcast. Find out more at ecommercemasterplan.com.